Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. As finance ministers meet in Luxembourg, the head of the ECB tells Virgin Media News that they will drive down inflation. We have the mission to bring inflation down to 2% in the medium term, and we will deliver on that. Also in Luxembourg, Christine Lagarde says that her good friend Pascal Donoghue is doing what she says is a stellar job as president of the Eurogroup. The lady is for turning. Liz Truss and her Chancellor do a U-turn on controversial tax cut plans for the rich. What a day. It has been tough, but we need to focus on the job in hand. And later we discuss continuing controversy over the building blocks levy. Join the conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag TonightVMTV. Former Sinn Féin councillor Jonathan Dowdle is willing to testify in the Regency murder trial and has implicated others the special criminal court has heard. Jerry the Monk Hutch was due to stand trial today for the murder of David Byrne at the Regency Hotel in 2016, but the trial has been adjourned following the developments. Well, earlier, our courts reporter Deborah Naylor told me more about what happened today and the big security operation around the court. Well, this was the first day back here of the court's term, and I suppose it certainly wasn't um, what you would see on, on a typical day in court in terms of the security presence there. It was there from very early on this morning. Uh, there was a number of armed Gardaí, and indeed when uh, Jonathan Dowdell and his father arrived to court this morning, a very visible security presence both inside and outside the court, and that was echoed again this afternoon uh, when Jared Hutch, known as the monk, um, arrived to court when Jonathan Dowdle's sentence hearing was taking place. He and his father were both brought into the body of the court uh, through the jury box and they were led over to the dock and uh, they were flanked by, um, by civilian Gardaí for, for the duration of the hearing. Which is in itself really unusual. So what did the court hear today about Jonathan Dowdle? Well, today was the sentence hearing for Jonathan Dowdell and his father, Patrick Dowdell, and they last week pleaded guilty to facilitating um, the murder of uh, David Byrne at the Regency Hotel in 2016. They were originally due to go on trial, so uh, had that not happened last week, they would have been going on trial today um, in relation to, to the Regency attack. Um, Jonathan Dowdell for, for murder and his father for, for a lesser charge. However, after that guilty plea last week, today was the sentence hearing. We heard really about the details of the Regency trial and, and, and their involvement in it. And we heard that on the day before the attack, uh, which was February 
February 5th, 2016, that uh, Jonathan Dowdle and his father were both involved in renting a room at the Regency Hotel. His father paid uh, for a hotel room in cash. And then Jonathan Dowdle gave um, a member of the crime gang, uh, he gave him a, a key card for the room uh, the day before the attack. But the evidence we heard, that was... The, the sum, as we heard in court, of their involvement in this case. And then we also heard, obviously, the details, uh, their, the personal details, their dealings with the Hodge family. Jonathan Dowdle knew him from being a teenager. Um, and after that, of course, we did hear then, I suppose, the, one of the most noteworthy things we did hear today, that Jonathan Dowdle was willing to give evidence in the Regency trial and that he had already been uh, speaking to Gardaí and that he gave a statement last week. And that he had implicated other people, we believe. In essence, he is becoming a state witness. What does that mean for someone? Well, what, what we heard today was that he, he was willing to give evidence in this trial. So what we assume and expect at this stage is that he will give that evidence as, as the prosecution witness. And we heard indeed that this is evidence that would be very vital to the prosecution. But what that means for him as of now, him and his father and indeed his extended family have been placed in protective guard, the custody. Um, so you could even see that security presence there. And we've told that uh, the, the process is now in train for them to be placed into the uh, witness protection programme. This will mean that ultimately uh, they, we were told it's unlikely they will ever return to Ireland. They will have to assume uh, new identities. So really, we were told that life as Jonathan Dowdle knew it will never be the same again. Uh, there was, as you mentioned, um, the trial of Jerry the Monk Hutch. It was due to be the first day of his trial today. Uh, but the defence thought for that to be adjourned. What reason did they give? Well, the reason effectively they gave is due to the other developments. They said now there's been a huge amount of additional evidence for, for them to sift through in the case and, and that basically that would change the parameters of how the defence would, would, would approach uh, the defence in this case. So due to that, they sought an adjournment today. Uh, it is but due back in court again next Monday, but, um, you know, it may not may not may now not get ahead for a number of weeks and due to the number of cases that are actually in the Special Criminal Court, if it does not proceed next week, it's likely that uh, it could be facing lengthy delays with other cases coming through. All right, but you'll keep us updated on that. Deborah Naylor, thanks for coming in to us this evening. Thank you. Well, the president of the European Central Bank has told Virgin Media News that the bank will deliver on a promise to get inflation down. Christine Lagarde was speaking in Luxembourg today, where finance ministers are meeting to discuss pressing issues such as the cost of living and the energy crisis. Well, our economics correspondent, Paul Colgan, is in Luxembourg for us tonight. Paul, what can we expect to emerge or to be agreed upon in that meeting tomorrow? Well, it was very clear from this morning what the ECB president wanted, what the various EU commissioners who also attended this meeting wanted. They want fiscal policy and monetary policy to go hand in hand. In other words, the ECB is putting up interest rates in order to bring down inflation. It has a medium-term target of 2%. Inflation is currently running at 10% in Europe but it doesn't want governments going out and throwing too much money at the problem of high energy bills because they fear that will feed further into inflation and make their job more difficult. So it's a tricky conundrum for governments right around Europe. Of course, the Irish government just last week 
contributed just over 4 billion euro in once-off measures to help people get through the winter months. Other governments have promised to borrow huge amounts of money, such as Germany, and that was a point of contention here today. Some member states are looking at Germany and saying, well, if they can borrow lots of money, why can't we do the same? But the message from the ECB is, no, you can only do what is temporary, targeted and tailored. Those are the words that Christine Lagarde used when we were speaking to her today. Of course, Pascal Donoghue is the current president of the Eurogroup. He chaired that meeting today, and that was the ultimate outcome of that meeting, that sort of message. But of course, it could be one of the last meetings that Pascal Donoghue chairs as uncertainty continues to swirl about his role as president of the Eurogroup. His future as president of the Eurogroup uncertain, Pascal Donoghue made his way to Luxembourg this morning. Ahead of a meeting of the Eurozone finance ministers, a technical briefing with officials. European governments are trying to cushion the blow of inflation, but they're under pressure not to make the situation worse. Madame Lagarde. Oui, monsieur. I'm Paul. The ECB president is urging a balancing act. Speaking exclusively to Virgin Media News ahead of the meeting today, Christine Lagarde said exacerbating the situation had to be avoided. Yeah, it is important that fiscal and monetary policies work hand in hand. We are independent. The European Central Bank is an independent institution. We have the mission to bring inflation down to 2% in the medium term, and we will deliver on that. But it's critically important that fiscal authorities also appreciate that and do not fuel inflation by providing measures that would not be properly tailored, targeted and temporary. We have to stay the course. Also attending this evening were EU commissioners on trade and the economy. The economy commissioner telling Virgin Media News that a common approach is now needed. All member states have their own interests and this is understandable. But if everyone goes in, in its own way, uh, we risk to, to, to make mistakes. Domestically, the role of Pascal Donoghue as Eurogroup president is at the centre of a row between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. When Michael McGrath becomes finance minister, the odds of Mr Donoghue keeping the Eurogroup job drop considerably. His Eurogroup colleagues keen today to sing his praises. I think we all agree among ministers, commissioners, that uh, Pascal was uh, chairing the group in a fair way, uh, working as chairman and also having uh, uh, some touch of Irish culture that was very interesting and useful for us. Pascal has been, uh, first of all, a good friend uh, and uh, certainly an excellent president of the Eurogroup. I've seen many of them, you know, I'm one of the veterans in that group. And I've seen um, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, I've seen uh, Jeroen Dusselbron. I have seen Mario Centeno and now I see Pascal and he certainly does a stellar job and he's a great uh, credit uh, to Ireland and the legendary Irish approach uh, to uh, collegiality, cooperation, uh, determination to compromise without being complacent. So I think he has really done a, a great service to Europe and to the Eurogroup. He's highly appreciated. Well, he's very popular, it would appear, or Pascal. Is there any clarity emerging this evening, Paul, on what's going to happen to that position? 
Well, Pascal Donahue will undoubtedly take some heart from the kind comments from his colleagues here, but I'm not sure whether that will change the calculation whatsoever within the government, whether it will change the calculation within Fianna Fáil. Michael McGrath has made it very clear at, at the recent Fianna Fáil thinking that it is, his, it is his belief that it is the finance minister who represents Ireland at the Eurogroup and that when he becomes finance minister as part of that agreement with Fine Gael, that that will be his job. There is some speculation that there might be some sort of compromise here that the finance minister, Michael McGrath, will still be able to come here as Ireland's representative and Pascal Donoghue could have some additional sort of role, but it's far from clear whether that would fly within government. At the press conference, which Pascal Donoghue also chaired here this evening, there was questions from the foreign press about what he intends on doing next, and it was put to him that perhaps he would like the job of the economy commissioner who was sitting beside him, the man you heard in that package there, Paolo Gentolini. Um, of course, Mr Donoghue kicked this to touch and said he was concentrating on his job as finance minister and also president of the Eurogroup. But of course, if this is to be resolved, there is a time frame here. He will have to tell the Eurogroup very soon that he's not staying on because they will have to look for candidates to come forward to apply for that job. Then there will have to be a, an election procedure. That will take several months and they'll want that person in situ early in the new year. OK, we'll leave it there for now. Paul Colgan, thanks for that. Well, I'm joined on our panel this evening by Minister of State at the Department of Finance, Sean Fleming, Independent TD, Michael Fitzmaurice, and Sunday Times political correspondent, Aoife Moore. You're all very welcome to the programme. Sean, is it worth losing the Eurogroup presidency so that a Fianna Foyler can become the Minister for Finance? Well, it's very important that Ireland have a very strong and good representative out there, um, and, you know, in the Eurogroup both now and always into the future. And I'm absolutely convinced and that is going to continue to be the case. Well, it, looks like we, it, no, it would seem there isn't clarity on that, that we might lose uh, the presidency there. Fianna Fáil um, will have the Ministry for Finance and I think there's a clear agreement between the Taoiseach and the Tarnished and they will rotate on the 15th of December. It's understood the same will happen in the Department of Finance and the Department of Public Expenditure. And the and Minister we'll just let this position go? And position the Minister, Ireland will be a strong player in the Eurogroup this year, next year and into the future. Aoife? Listen, I think this is very much a bubble story. Like when you go out and speak to people on the street, they are not worried about whether Pascal or, or Pascal or Michael McGrath is the um, president of the Eurogroup. I think for optics wise, I do think if um, the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, did manage to hold on to it, I feel like it would be very embarrassing for Fianna Fáil. It would be very embarrassing for Michael McGrath. It would come away, I think Fianna Gael... It would Gale, undermine him, wouldn't it, really? It would, and it would come away with the... It would give the impression that Fianna Gael aren't team players. This wasn't the, the, the agreement. Um, there was supposed to be a swap whether he was Eurogroup president or not, and that's the way it should be. And I don't know other than the great standing um, that it gives Ireland to say, yeah, we're chairing it. It doesn't give us any more bargaining power than we have already. So I think I think Move it would be better if Fianna Fáil got, got it, but I don't think it really matters to people. All right, I want to move a little closer to home. We're going to the UK now because after 10 days of financial turmoil, a collapse in the price of sterling, a spike in borrowing costs, the British government has abandoned its plans to scrap the top rate of tax. Well, Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng says he's acknowledging the backlash to the plan just a day after Liz Truss 
said it would go ahead definitively. Well, I'm joined live now from London by news correspondent Ollie Barrett. Uh, Ollie, we heard the Chancellor say there, what a day. I was watching the um, conference all afternoon and he was being pursued by the media all day. They were questioning his judgment, questioning his competence, asking him if he was going to resign. I mean, there was a huge amount of pressure, a huge amount of focus on his speech and his address this afternoon. How did he do? It was a pretty awkward speech at times, actually, uh, because uh, for much of it, he was talking about what he was describing really as the failed economic plans of the previous government run by people like Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. And of course, quite a lot of people in the room that he was talking to were supporters of Rishi Sunak, for example, in the leadership election. So it really was a speech that partly exposed divisions in the Conservative Party. And at times it was pretty awkward for him. It was a humiliating U-turn that he had to make, as you were saying, just hours after Liz Truss was insisting in television interviews that the entirety of that so-called growth plan was going to be stuck to by the government. But she and Kwasi Kwarteng got together late last night and it was becoming clear to them that there were just more and more Conservative MPs saying privately and some publicly that they wouldn't be able to back particularly that abolition of the top rate of tax when it came to a vote in the House of Commons. And so the numbers were stacking up against the government. It was a battle in the end. They didn't want to fight, partly because I think they realised they were probably going to lose it. So they couldn't back the abolition of that top rate of tax, but can they, can they support the rest of the plan? Because really, that abolition was about £2 billion, wasn't it, in this £45 billion worth of tax cuts? There's still £43 billion of tax cuts on the table. Will that get through? Currently unfunded tax cuts. Yes, the strategy at the moment is pretty clear, which is that Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss are going to try and get the rest of that package through um, in as complete a form as they possibly can. They will hope that they can uh, move on now, having ditched that abolition of the, uh, the top rate of tax for the wealthiest earners. Uh, and the other part of that equation is another mini U-turn, actually, that Kwasi Kwarteng is making this evening. He had previously been saying that he would set out on November the 23rd, the medium-term fiscal strategy for his government. He's now saying that that will happen sooner than that, and it could be as soon as this month. One of the reasons for doing that would be to do it before the next Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee meeting, which will likely put up interest rates in a way that will affect many millions of people. And so what Kwasi Kwarteng is trying to do here is retain some of that confidence, restore some of that confidence among international investors and the markets and his own Conservative MPs by by saying that he'll set out his fiscal plans on things like spending uh, and how much money will have to be cut from public services. The idea of that is so that he can try and retain as much of his tax-cutting mini-budget as he possibly can between now and then. And obviously another issue on this Trust's plate will be the protocol, and we've heard that the EU and the UK are to resume talks on this. Is this seen as a big reset. I mean, the EU have said they're willing to go further on the proposals they put forward last October. The UK now willing to compromise too? Are they looking for a solution? 
I think the feeling is that Liz Truss's administration would like to find a solution. It's going to be tricky to find one that she can sell to all wings of her Conservative Party. But I think uh, given all of the chaos that we've seen on financial markets after that mini-budget was unveiled by Kwasi Kwarteng, uh, there is a, a growing sense that actually this is the kind of victory with, with, with the protocol agreement, if there is one to be found, that Liz Truss could sell as a win, not just to the party, but to the country, and that the idea of another long-running row with Brussels, with the European Union, over the Northern Ireland Protocol is probably not what Liz Truss's government needs at the moment. So there is a, a growing sense that the tone, the atmosphere has changed around okay. uh, discussions uh, that are going to get going again with the European Union as soon as this week in the form of technical talks. That doesn't, of course, mean uh, that a landing zone is actually in sight yet. But uh, as I say, the atmosphere, I think Liz Truss's government is trying to shift towards an agreement if they can possibly settle upon one that can be sold uh, to various sections of different types of electorate here in the UK. Ollie Barrett, thanks as always. Uh, Aoife, I was looking at the Labour Party conference last week. The, the air was jubilant. There was mm. excitement. It was totally different uh, at the Conservative Party conference today. Have they done enough, do you think, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng? Have they steadied the ship? Absolutely not. I mean, they're at record. Uh, Labour are now breaking records to how far ahead they are of the Conservatives and the polls, considering where they came from in the last election, where they lost, you know, that Labour red wall um, to the Conservatives. Liz Truss um, gave an interview on Sunday morning in the BBC that I think will go down in history as one of the worst political interviews. Um, it was awkward in the extreme, wasn't I it? I felt like I was going to pull a muscle. I was cringing so much. And I don't think investors, bankers, people look, looking at that see someone they can have confidence in. Um, so she the has climb been undermined, down, hasn't she? Yeah, and I think if you're putting out a press release at half seven on a Monday morning, I think it's probably accepted that you've been up all night and this isn't a good idea. I think she has a way to go. She also hasn't said whether she's going to cut public spending, but because these tax cuts are not funded, she's going to have to do that. Public services are going to have to go there. That's always... Public benefits. Yes. Maybe cut. Are, and social welfare may be yeah. cut. Essential services may be cut. I don't think this spells confidence for anybody, for the most vulnerable and for the people in the banks. I mean, Michael, you know, sometimes we enjoy, I suppose, the theatre of all of this. It's, you know, fascinating to watch the Conservative Party, you know, implode. But really, Ireland needs the UK to be strong, doesn't it? This is not in our favour. Definitely so for exports and especially in agriculture. Um you know, the weaker the sterling gets, the worse it is for Irish exports. Um, and the other side of this is as well, and I think that we need to be looking at it, the euro is weak as well, like in the likes of the dollar, which is concerning. Um, like what Liz Trust done or what they done in the budget, they were going borrowing money to basically put more money into the pockets of the wealthy. Wasn't a great idea, first of all. But um, while people might be amused at what happened in the UK, I think we're very reliant on certain, mm. uh, you know, certain section, sectors of our of our country that uh, really need the UK for what they buy. Do they need, or they, do they deserve rather, um, Sean Fleming, some kudos for, you know, putting their hands up and saying, look, we did make a mistake. We did hear you and we have changed our minds and we are eating humble pie today. Yeah, you've said all that. A little that. slice, I think, for Quasi Quartang. It didn't look yeah. that humble, actually. <laughs> no, but like, look, they've got off to a very shaky start, a new government, and I think... Um, we would hope it's in our interest 
as uh, one of the main countries we deal with, that there be stability re restored as quickly as possible and that the currency be steady as quickly as possible. So while we, uh, in this side of the RUC, will not comment on their internal political issues, I think what we would all want, both at the Irish level, the UK level and EU level, is a bit of stability because we want to continue trade and we want to know what the currency is worth when we're dealing with them. And we don't want too much of a variation between uh, sterling and the euro. And I think stability is what we need very, very quickly. But given what we've seen over the last 10 days, it's only yeah. been 10 days, yeah. do you have confidence in the partnership of Liz Truss and Quasi Quartang? Look, at, it's their government. It's certainly not right for an, uh, anybody in the Irish government to start talking about confidence or lack of confidence in the other side. We will deal with them up front. We're very happy. But do you uh, like what you see? Do you like the well, policies? What, what, do I do like, what I do like and what I see is the apology by the Northern Ireland Secretary of State in relation to not taking adequate cognizance of the Irish issue uh, when they were pushing for their Brexit vote. He's apologised humbly for that. And, and I you want buy to, that at face value? Oh, look, at it. we've never heard language like that from a Tory before. So I take that as a positive step, something we need to build on and something that the EU, I think, will respond to positively as well. All right, look, my panel is going to be staying here with... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Me and after the break, are you willing to pay a few thousand more for a new home due to the building blocks levy? We debate with the construction industry and our panel. Do stay with us. You're very welcome back. Minister of State Sean Fleming. Independent TD Michael Fitzmaurice, Sunday Times political correspondent Aoife Moore are all still here with me and I'm also joined now by Tom Parlin from the Construction Industry Federation because we're going to talk about continuing controversy over the government's building blocks levy announced in the budget. Uh, Aoife, this sort of concrete levy it's been called, mm -hmm. it was mooted last year, wasn't it? And then it appears to have been abandoned and brought back 
no way. There was some chat about it, but it never really reached official level as far as I can see. Um, the case for it was basically made by Theo Reger and the minister beside me that, you know, the money for the mica uh, affected homes has to come from somewhere. And what Leo Varadkar and Pascal Donahue said is that people want certainty when it comes to the fiscal decisions and they want to be able to tell the people this is where the money is coming from and it has to come from somewhere. The other point that they would make is that the MICA families all along the West cannot wait any longer um, for their redress because they are living in very unsafe conditions. However, I think the most interesting thing about this is the MICA families are also not happy about this. They, they feel like a concrete levy takes accountability away from those who provided the concrete blocks. You know, I was speaking to one person who said what they want is new regulations, you know, tighter regulations. They want to see um, something that would basically say to them that this will not happen to other families, it will not happen again. We'd heard in the Housing Committee as recently as June, I believe, that they said that there was industry reports that regulatory breaches were still ongoing. This is not fill them full of confidence. So what they're doing is they're adding the to the cost of the price of a house, which is already out of reach for a lot of people. And also they're not fixing the main problem, which is the quarries and whoever else was involved in providing these defective blocks, what is to stop it happening again? So Sean Fleming, you're letting those who are responsible away scot-free and you're making a taxpayer who had nothing to do with this pay. Yeah, you're right. The taxpayer is being asked to pay about 3 billion euro, which is probably for every house in Ireland, 1,500 to pay for this particular micro problem and the problems we may have with some of the apartments in Dublin. I have a and very, the concrete levy on top of and, that. And I think very clearly the industry um, that was at the centre of this must be levied to some extent to make a contribution okay. to the Irish taxpayer for the three billion that the Irish taxpayer has been asked to pay. And, and you believe asked... that contribution is through this concrete levy on new houses, and yet you have the ESRA coming out on Friday saying, no, no, this will ultimately be shouldered by the people who are buying the houses. Well, taxpayer again. And the, the levy uh, should be levied on the construction industry, and through the construction industry, that's working its way into the concrete blocks. And I think it's right that the industry that was involved in this uh, be involved in making a contribution um, to the cost of MICA. And I think if so we were to just to be know, clear, if we you think the concrete industry are going to absorb this cost no, no, and not pass it on to the it, consumer? It will be passed on, but I think people of Ireland would not like to see the government handing out three billion of Irish taxpayers' money and not saying to the construction industry who are involved in building the houses, yeah, you should get off scot-free. There must be some source of income from the industry to make a small contribution. Sorry, sorry, sorry Sean Fleming, you've just, yeah. you've just said you think that people watching at home this evening yeah. will want to see the Construction Industry Federation pay yeah. for this, but this will be passed on to the consumer. I don't understand. Well, if there, there, will, there will be a levy, and I think that's clear. And if people think there can be a levy on the <coughs> construction industry in relation to this, that it won't be passed on. I'd love to know how that can work. So it will be passed on? Well, I, if, if somebody can show me how it won't be passed on, I'd love to hear it. So the construction industry isn't paying? No, they are paying. They're not. You're saying they're passing it on to the well, consumer. The, yes, but the, the industry, the house building industry is the industry that caused this problem and the cost has to fall somewhere. If you're arguing that the taxpayer should pay every bill for everything without going seeking any redress, no, no, I'm there definitely... needs to be some redress. 
And it, it, do you agree there should be some redress? Because if you, yeah, you but you're, you're just, just to be clear, you're be saying no, there no. What you're saying redressed. is the Construction Industry Federation should pay. For I never this. mentioned the federation. But the construction, construction industry, industry, sorry, not the federation, Tom. The construction industry should pay for this. Yeah. But I accept it to be passed on to the consumers. There, so needs, the consumers to, there needs to be redress paid um, through the construction industry, full stop. Michael. Yeah, I think the first thing that needs to be corrected is, um, Sean said that those building houses or whatever, it'll be 1,500. It's probably, and I think Tom will back this up. Um, those young people that are going to build in houses will be about 3,000 extra. The farmer that's built in a slashed shed where you use an awful lot of extra concrete is going to probably pay four or 5,000. Sean said 1,500 in every house. That's not the way this is going to pan out. This is going to be youngsters that's trying to get onto the housing ladder or farmers that's trying to improve their farms. On top of that, one thing we haven't thought of is that the government do a lot of contracts around the country. So is the government going to tax the government going to go back again to the government? This doesn't make sense. On top of that, and I think we need to go back a few years, that when we had the bank bailout, the, the Department of Finance stated very clearly we wouldn't put on an extra levy because it was actually affecting the ordinary people for what the bank's done. And that was a large figure, I think something like 65 billion. But now we're talking about 3 billion, but we are going to throw it on top of the people that's looking to get on the housing ladder or that's trying to buy a house, which is very unfair. Do you believe in the principle, though, that somehow the construction industry the first, should pay the first, for this? The first principle I believe in is that the people that put out a faulty prod product should be paying through insurance. That's the first thing I believe in. Not the ordinary people around the country that is now going to be saddled with this debt. And just to be clear, Tom, the construction industry is not going to absorb this, are they? Well, they can't afford to absorb it, and that wouldn't be what would normally happen. Like already this year, because of... Uh, energy crisis and so on, uh, the price of concrete and cement has gone up by almost 30%. And that's been, you know, the latest one. A notice comes out from the, the small number of cement manufacturers to say cement is going up by 10%. And then immediately the block manufacturers and the, the ready mix and the precast people will send out to their customers saying, as of the 1st of September, our concrete. So that that's, doesn't happen. So you say this is going to push up the price? of a house, of never course. mind all the other buildings. Absolutely, there's no question about it. And I mean, you mentioned Alan Barrett and ESRI at the very outset. He said if there was an iota of basic economic analysis done on this particular levy, it would be proven that it's not going to work in the way that it was intended. And just to take Sean up on the issue, like when you said the industry, uh, we used to share a constituency and I still yeah. live down in a constituency, but it's the boot concrete and it's the Lucknan concrete yeah. and it's the Benner concrete. Individual companies, family companies that have never broken a law are fully compliant and doing a very good job. And they're going to have to collect the levy on behalf of the government. And the only way they can do it is pass it on to the farmer and the house builder. And so who, who should pay then, Tom, if there is a defect in a house, be it mica or pyrite or a problem with the fire regulations... Who's responsible? Who pays? Well, in the ideal situation, and currently, the person who caused the problem would pay. Great. But in that situation, first of all, we didn't have the regulation, but certainly it was quite outrageous. A particular, one particular firm, to a very large extent, put out a massive volume of defective blocks that caused all of this problem. And one of the main reasons that there were so many of them put out, they were so cheap. Because nobody that was doing but a proper job But you're saying there was no regulation. And what you're saying, Aoife, is the regulation still isn't there. Yeah, and if the building regulations were not good enough, then the buck stops with the government. It is the government's fault if the building regulations weren't tight enough. And it's not, as um, he said, it's not fair 
on the people now producing concrete blocks that have no defects and have never done this. They will now be levied for that. This is what the families affected by Mike and Pie Rider calling for. It's not a levy that they want because remember, they're going to have to put money to rebuild their houses. So it's also putting the cost up for those people because they're going to have to buy blocks when they have to uh, yeah. rebuild their houses. Uh, Sean, it seems nonsensical. You have three people here all saying, yeah. two who you've been a builder, Michael Fitzmaurice, you're obviously here from the Construction Industry Federation, saying this can't be absorbed by our members and it will be passed on to ordinary people. So last week in the budget, you had your help to buy scheme recognition yes. that people could not afford to buy houses in Ireland. You're giving the money to help them to buy these houses and at the same time, you're introducing this levy that's going to put up the price of those houses. Okay. Explain and that to me because the, the, I think it's the, pretty nonsensical. The argument boils down very simply and should the industry that was involved in this make some contribution uh, to the cost of resolving this? I think the answer to that is yes. I do believe if this was um, um, in the insurance industry, or any other industry, the industry involved should be asked to make a contribution. How it's worked out, the details of the finance bill will have the exact details of that in the next two weeks, so, which I can't give tonight yeah. because it's still being worked on. But so just there, clear, do you no, feel there that there is a levy or there is a way of putting a charge on the construction industry that will ensure it's not passed on to those buying houses. Well, can you guarantee uh, that? Nobody can guarantee how uh, any company will pass on its costs, right? Nobody. So if you're asking me to give a guarantee to any insurance, nobody can do that. But I think the essence here is, if the Irish taxpayer is putting up €1,500 for every house in Ireland to pay for this three billion, I think it's not unreasonable that the industry at the centre of it should be asked to make a contribution. Do you accept what Tom was saying there that this is actually just a failure of regulation? Well, and the failure of regulation. No, no, the, sorry, the that, that, that's the failure of the the, the suppliers that caused the problem. The government didn't build a house. You might say there wasn't adequate regulation, but who made the mistake at the beginning? It was members of the construction industry. And I think no, some, ele some element... Okay, some element back in well, there were suppliers in yeah, the industry. Well, well, just I'm not saying your members. The CIF don't represent the quarries okay. or the, yeah. the, the concrete manufacturers. Thinking of the block manufacturers. Can I just come in here? But, but there were defective blocks produced. We... We, we, we assume that when we buy a product, or my members, when they buy a product that is fit for purpose, so the bulk of the blocks in the country were fit for purpose. But, you know, while this is a, a very significant problem in, uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a particular area of the country... And it's it a very significant amount of money. We're talking maybe 3.6 billion is the price they're putting on this micro-redress scheme. Absolutely. Edward. So but, how, how, does the, the government notion, not have a right to try and recoup some of that for taxes? Of course. But the difficulty is that we didn't have the regulation. And clearly, this company got away with, with selling... Uh, uh, substandard material and selling it cheaply. And so the government then buy. shouldn't punish the rest of the industry. Is well, look, at it's society that are going to have to pay for it. The construction industry will be part of the solution and so on. But the notion... How is the construction industry part of the solution if you're saying well, we pay not going to Well, we pay our taxes and very substantial taxes. And the notion that the industry isn't paying, like the, the government are giving a help to buy scheme, which is a, to a maximum of 30,000. Yeah. Every single house that's built pays 13.5% fat which is a minimum of 36,000. That's going into this sector immediately before they pay anything out. So the, the industry is paying its fair share already, like every other taxpayer. So we will contribute through society. Michael. But the notion that you can just target compliant, uh, honest-to-goodness family builders around the country 
they will pass it on and it's the unfortunate uh, well, first-time buyer that will have to pay for it. It's not the builders who are being targeted, it's the homeowners that will rent. And they're like, already under massive pressure. What's the alternative here? Well, first of all, I think if you do look at when you're building a house, um, I think something like 30, 40% between the wages you give out that goes back in tax, between all the, the materials that goes back, 30 to 40% goes back to the exchequer and taxes. So there is a cash cow coming into them already. I'm, I believe that we should be going hard on the companies that sold these defective materials. But here, like, it's a fairly simple um, system to bring into place, and it was never done by, be it councils or whoever should do it, um, that when you're opening a quarry or when you're making blocks, that is tested. When you get concrete, you, and that's you, you not can send the, the concrete away for analysis and be tested. And it's a fairly simple thing to be done. And on a lot of large buildings, I think Tom will never write in saying, you, you take the cube of concrete and you go away and you get it tested. Absolutely. And, and all this should have been done and it should be regulated, but it wasn't. But now the ordinary Joe soap, that's be it building a slad tank, putting up a bit of a shed, or building a house, their first house in life, is 3,000 more because of it. Um, Sean, this levy, 80 million. If it goes ahead, it's expected to um, generate. That is a drop in the ocean, isn't it? If the overall cost is 3.6 billion, this micro redress scheme. How long is this levy going to be in place? I don't have an answer to that, and that'll be in the finance bill. But what, as you said, is it's a relatively small contribution to the 3 billion. And well, I it believe. It depends how long it's in place for. Yeah, it does. And it'll be a percent of the overall cost, but a small percent ultimately. And it is right that there be, should, should be some small contribution from the industry. So just to be clear tonight, in yeah. this government, as it stands, even though you're saying the cost will be passed on... I didn't say to, that, you did, but it's kind of obvious it will, it will happen. Be it's obvious, obvious it will happen. This government isn't for turning on this issue. What I'm saying is, I think the, the fairest thing to do is for the Irish taxpayer to pick up the vast cost of this, but I think the sector itself should also be asked to contribute. Aoife, where's this going to end up? I feel like we're talking round and round in circles here. We're saying that the industry should contribute, but also then the then it's going to be passed on the, the home buyer. I feel like I'm losing my mind. Um, I think it is deeply unpopular. We've heard this from Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael backbenchers that they're not happy about this. I spoke to cabinet ministers last week, this week and last week, and they said that there was, you know, a kind of uneasiness about it that when the finance bill came out, it mightn't be as blunt as an instrument as we're kind of seeing at the moment. But there's no real... I heard from one Fianna Fáil minister it might change and then another Fianna Gael saying it wouldn't. So I think it is still um, all they play for. It Optics-wise, it doesn't look great. But in terms of like the vast kind of the big picture, I don't think this is something that's going to pull down the government. Okay, my thanks to Tom and Aoife. Sean and Michael are going to be staying here with me. Next, can you afford to buy or indeed to charge your electric car? Stay with us. Back. Sean Fleming and Michael Fitzmaurice are still here and we're also joined now by Sunday Independent motoring editor Geraldine Herbert to talk about the cost of running an electric car. Adair, first of all, there were positive figures out today in terms of the number of electric cars being bought in Ireland. Yeah, new car sales are down. They're down quite considerably on pre-COVID figures, but EVs are just going from strength to strength. They're up about 85% on this time last year. And in September alone, we sold over 1,800, which is, you know, fairly phenomenal um, figures. And also the best-selling car in September was an electric car, and the second best-selling was electric. So we haven't seen this before. 
Just to be clear, when we say it's up 86%, it's coming from a low base. Very low base. We're probably looking at about 57,000 on the road at the moment. But I mean, it, that I think what we need to look at is market share and market share is growing. It's doubling every year and that's what we need to be getting to. You know, it's the proportion of new cars that are being sold that are electric. So if it continued on this trajectory, if it's doubling every year, I can't do the maths right here and now, um, would we get to the 1 million cars by 2030 target? Or are we still way off? Even um, though things are, you know, are improving, certainly. Yeah, I, to be honest, I think the million target was always the wrong thing to do because first of all, it was set pre-Brexit and pre-COVID and both have had quite an impact on the, the car market. The second thing as well is it says nothing about the number of petrol and diesel cars on the road. So just putting a million electric cars tells us nothing. What we know in the likes of Norway is 80% of new cars sold are electric. That's where we need to get to is that sort of proportion of mm. that the majority of cars sold are electric. Because remember our new cars, our new electric cars today are our second-hand ones tomorrow. So, you know, that's what we need to be looking at. Not a particular number that we put on the road, but that the portion grows every year. What about affordability? Because for a lot of people, a lot of people I know, they would love to um, go electric. They'd love to buy an electric car, but it requires them buying a new car and they simply can't afford it. Is there evidence now that the gap between a new electric and a new petrol car or diesel car is narrowing? Yeah, it is. And what you need to look at is not that purchase price, because when you walk into a car dealership, the electric car is more expensive when you compare a similarly sized petrol and diesel. But what you need to look at is the total cost of ownership. So you need to look at the running costs, you need to look at the maintenance costs, the, the cheaper tolls, all of that. So when you Tax work that on out, it, yeah, they are cheaper to run. But at the moment, people are still, you know, they're still looking at that upfront purchase price. Now, you say they're still cheaper to run, but there is evidence, isn't there, Michael, that they're getting more expensive to run, obviously, as the cost of electricity goes through the roof? Yeah, obviously, they're saying as electricity goes up, it's getting dearer to charge them. But um, I do think that we're at a stage, though, that, you know, when you look around, and I saw a friend of my own bought an electric car late, which was 55 grand. Unless you're in a certain um, job or whatever, that you have a certain income, a lot of people um, don't, can't afford that. Um, on top of that, you would... Are they would the car of the rich at the moment, do you think? Well, they're the car of people with a few pounds anyhow compared with most of the people. Um, I think that it is a long way to go. I can't see it go near a million, to be quite frank about it. I think we should be looking at other options. That's my honest opinion. I don't think we should put all our eggs into one basket. I, I know that people will say that, uh, Geraldine, uh, and we spoke earlier, said that for the next seven or eight years that they're the, the sort of the buzz thing at the moment. But I do think we should be looking at other options. Hopefully down the road, hydrogen will be coming in. Um, HVO doesn't be talked about at the moment. There is options coming there. Um, and I think that um, with the new diesel engines as well, let's not kick them around the place because the emissions coming on the new engines is lowered and lowered on a constant basis. But not the same as an EV. But, and the other thing we have to question is the mileage at the end of it, um, you know, I have seen certain instances, and I don't, I'm not saying I'm an expert on it, but um, like a diesel car, you could go four or 500,000 miles and to keep going. It might be a wreck, but to keep going. Whereas I'd like to see the electric cars, how far they'll go. And I'm talking about miles, not kilometres. Okay. A lot of them have only a guarantee on the battery of 160,000 kilometres. Okay, and I think a lot of them probably do go in excess do, of yeah, that. I'm not saying you're not going. taking into yeah. account the climate emissions from those diesel cars that you're getting 500,000 miles. Well, if you, if you use the likes of HVO, you're cutting the diesel emissions by 95%. So that's a fair choice. And um, the, the cost has gone up, hasn't it, to charge your electric car? 
Yeah, but I mean, they're still considerably cheaper. There are night rates that you can go on and there isn't one EV owner that I know that isn't on a night rate and can't give you, you know, the percent cost of what it is to charge them. So even when they go up and if they go up by 30%, if you're paying 12 cent a kilometre or a kilowatt, it's still very good value in comparison to, uh, to fueling a car. So, I mean, there, there really is yeah. no comparison. They still are considerably cheaper to run. And of course, the price of petrol and diesel has gone up anyhow along with the price of electricity, so one possibly cancels out the other. What about the infrastructure? Is that keeping a pace here? The thing about the infrastructure you have to remember is, first of all, 80% of charging happens at home and in work. So people only rely on the infrastructure when they're going on long journeys, but it has to be there and it has to be improved. There are pockets around the country that are really badly served. They need investment. We need to make it better. But I think the infrastructure is And there is a difficulty, isn't there, um, with people, if you do get caught short and you need to charge your car and you're not at home and you're not in your workplace and you have to pull into a garage and charge it, there is a real cost there. Oh, there is. But at the same time as well, we need fast chargers, which we don't have a huge amount of those. We have a lot of the slow standard chargers around the country. They need to be upgraded. But I think the infrastructure is more of a concern for people who don't have an EV. They think they need to see better infrastructure, but they don't realise once you run one, you can manage it an awful lot better. That's not to say it doesn't need a huge improvement. Uh, Sean, in this latest budget, could the government not have done more to try and help people, put more money on the table to help people move over to EVs? We could, we could have done a lot of things, but we felt the immediate um, cost of living issue had to be dealt with and given priority for it rather than the 50,000 uh, brand new car. Um, and we felt that we had to look at the immediate issues first. But what I will say is, I think there's a clear issue. Those who don't do a lot of driving is really efficient for them. Those who do long journeys um, have a little bit more difficulty. And ultimately, when the electric vehicles can travel much longer distances with a single charge, I think at that stage, they will become very, very popular. But not until that stage. We have two and a half million cars. You don't think cars. the cost will still be prohibitive to people? You will look at, like everything, we have two and a half million cars on the road in Ireland as we speak today. We're going to try and work up to several hundred thousand electric vehicles. And I think you'll meet a critical mass that the price will come down when we get a higher volume. Do you think people watching tonight will think maybe I sold a bit of a pop when they see the prices of electricity? No, well, the first thing and the clear message um, from Geraldine is you need to be only charging at home on the night rate. Just be careful with that. All right. Uh, The one million target, is that gone? It's there, but I think everyone said, you know, it's just an arbitrary figure and we have to aim for it. And I think we're on a good trajectory, but it's going to take several years to get there. All right, look, we're going to have to leave it there. That's it from us. Uh, My thanks to my panel. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can also find us on Instagram and on TikTok tonight, VMTV. But from all the late team here, good night and do take care. is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.